a couple of weeks ago, I started a new book on the Cuban Missile Crisis, back to October of 1962. And, you know, it's interesting that I referenced that because some of you remember watching about that on TV, if they had TVs back then. Um, I kid, I kid. Uh, and some of you have no idea what in the world the Cuban Missile Crisis is. You, you're too young to have even watched Kevin Costner's movie, 13 Days, that told about it. And you think sometime in history class this will come up if it's not been deleted from the history books by then. Uh, but it takes us back to the, to the Cold War between America and Russia, where the Soviets were placing nuclear warheads in Cuba. There was also the space race going on to see who could first land on the moon. But underneath each of these subplots was a much bigger battle, a battle for ideas, right? Where the Soviets were, were seeking the global expansion of socialist ideals, that was kind of underneath all of those plots, right? And the Americans are seeking the global expansion of, of freedom, of democratic elections, and free market, and, and free speech, and so on. And so while there were particular disputes about missiles in Cuba or who's going to land on the moon first, there was a much deeper narrative actually going on in all of that. And today's passage is a little bit like that. We hear of these different little subplots, children being born, but there, there's a deeper narrative going on. There's a different kind of arms race, you might say, an arms race for children. And with each child, this deeper narrative becomes exposed and seen a little bit more clearly. And that's what forms the title of this morning's sermon, Grace for Our Longings. You see, the deeper narrative gets at the longings that are in the hearts of Leah and Rachel. And I think we'll see actually the longings of every single human heart. Now, passages like this can be tough to understand, right? Maybe Mark was reading and you're just thinking, what in the world is going on here? What are we going to do with this? Uh, and so this past week, we had a pastor's meeting. We, we meet once a month, and we were, uh, begin those meetings by reading the portion of God's word that's about to be preached, and then we, uh, we talk about it briefly, maybe five minutes or so, and then we pray over it. We pray over the church, the sermon, all of that. Uh, and so after reading the passage this past week, we're sitting around my living room, we open it up for conversation, and, and Pastor Jared looks over at me and he just says, good luck. <laughs> uh, you know, so, so if Mark was reading and you were feeling the same way, take heart, you're in good company. Sometimes pastors are not quite sure what the Bible is telling us to do or what it means, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, even as I first came to this passage, I'm kind of scratching my head thinking, what are we going to do here? Right? So, so one of the things that I think is valuable for us when we go to the Bible and understanding what it means, especially in tough passages, is to go back and to reread it. Just read it again. Except this time a little more slowly. You're still not sure what it means. That's okay. Read it slower again. You might want to try reading it out loud. And this isn't going to resolve every single Bible difficulty but it's a key concept for learning how to understand what does this actually mean? Why is this here? And what you'll find many times is that the Bible repeats the things that you're supposed to focus on. That repetition is critical. And in a quick reading, we find ourselves skimming a little bit and we miss some of the things that are right in front of us. So we want, we want to slow down as we go. In this passage, what we see being repeated and therefore emphasized is that children are being conceived, born, and then most significantly, they're being named. Ten times we read of the significance of the naming of these children. 
And the naming of the children reveals the thinking of Leah and of Rachel. And so by reading slowly, we see the repetition that tells us this is what the passage is actually about. The names tell us the story under the story, the deeper plot. What the names tell us is not merely what Leah and Rachel were thinking about, but what they're longing for. And their longings were for really good things. But their longings for good things had become ultimate things. They'd become idols in their heart. When I say idol, all I mean is something that's more important to you than God. There's all kinds of good things you can have in your life that you desire more than God, and a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. It becomes an idol, and it becomes a major problem. And the idols of their hearts show up in the names of their kids. And I just wonder if you would imagine adopting a practice like that in our culture today. Now, it's going to sound really weird for me to say this, but just imagine we did something like this. Imagine it's your first day at a new church, and you show up, and afterwards you want to meet the pastor in the back. You say, Pastor, here's my family with all of my kids named after my idols. I'd like to introduce you to my oldest, sexual urges. <laughs> Next came rapid job promotion. Finally, here are the twins, great marriage and financial stability. Now, that sounds crazy to say, but essentially that's what's happening in this passage. The things I long for that become my idols, that are good things in and of themselves, they've become ultimate things, and I've named my kids after them. From a human perspective, the names in this story serve as a tragic, lifelong reminder for each of the children of their stormy origins. Can't you imagine being that kid? Like, gee, thanks, Mom and Dad. Really appreciate that. But from a divine perspective, there's a totally different way of seeing this. That these names serve as a never-ending memorial, a monument of sorts to God's relentless grace in pursuing and redeeming and using people who, let's just say, are uninspiring. And so if you're here this morning and you're feeling beat down, you're feeling spiritually tired, you're super aware of your spiritual failures and your sinfulness, how you're not becoming like Jesus as fast as you think you should, boy, I want you to know I'm so glad you're here. Because this passage puts God's relentless grace on display in an amazing way. And if the idols of your heart seem to keep coming back like zombies that just won't stay dead, that's what it feels like, they just keep coming back and I can't ever get rid of these things, then Genesis 29 and 30 is a glorious passage for you to be here and to meditate on. So with that in mind, let us pray. Father, we come to your word, recognizing our great need for grace, that our idols keep coming back over and over, and there are good things that we long for, and they become ultimate things, they become idols that we must have. We turn away from you and we seek them. And so as we open your word this morning, we ask that your grace would break into our lives, We'd see you, the goodness of Jesus. We would be satisfied and, and really be able to say that you are all that we need. May it be, come what may, that we may rest all our days in the goodness of Jesus. Help us to see that this morning. We can only see it if you open our eyes and you open our ears and you give us a humble heart to see this. So we ask for your help. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to structure our outline in three basic points. You see grace for Leah's longings. I want to secondly see grace for Rachel's longings. 
And then the third point, I know you were all wondering about the mandrakes. What is the business with the daggum mandrakes? So don't worry about it, I'll get to that, and I'm actually gonna make that the third point, grace in the mandrakes. So you don't have to worry, I didn't skip it. We'll get there, and uh, that's your, your brief teaser, all right? So let's start with the first one, grace for Leah's longings. At the core of Leah's longings is this desire for love and approval. She seeks it from her husband in the form of children. Notice, it's a great desire to be loved, to desire to be approved. Nothing wrong with that. It's a good desire. It's a good desire for a husband and for children. There's, the problem is not the desire itself. You've got to recognize that, right? Let's go back to the passage, see what it says. I hope you've got your copy of God's Word open. Let's look back at chapter 29. I'm going to start in verse 32. We're reading about Leah here. Here's what we read. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he's given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So we're reading about Leah, and we read that she was afflicted. That shows up one time. And then two times, it says that she was hated. That word hated is also often translated as unloved. We know, psychologists tell us, and we can utilize what they say, or we can just tell you what the Bible says, and theologically I can make the exact same point. They both agree that to be loved is one of the deepest longings of the human heart. Now when I say it's a theological statement, that is what it means to be made in the image of God. The God who is love, who was in eternity past in the Trinity in a loving relationship Forever, Father loving the Son, Son loving the Spirit, Spirit loving the Father, all of that, you've seen the diagrams. To be made in his image is to be made as someone who gives love and longs to be loved. That's what it is to be made in the image of God. Leah is not loved by her husband, so she despairs. But it's more than just a, a violation of how God had designed her. You see, in that culture, to be unloved, to be hated by her husband was to make her insecure legally. She was in a, a major place of difficulty where her husband could cast her off at any moment and she would have no protection. Her husband could mistreat her almost however he wanted and she would have no course of action. Her husband could divorce her almost whenever he wanted for whatever reason he wanted and she would have no course of action. She would be subjected to abject poverty and all the difficulties that come along with that. So we find her seeking children for her husband to gain this love and approval because that's who she was made to be and because she has an interest in self-preservation as we all do. It's a good desire that she would want children to be fruitful and multiply and fulfill the mandate that God had given to Adam and Eve and carries on. To have children would bring great favor in that culture. And certainly the, the stability that I just spoke of. 
But the irony of this situation is that the love and approval that she should have sought most ultimately and fundamentally in God, she seeks that love and that approval in her husband and the children she can bear for him. I said the names of the children would be significant. Here's where we start to get a glimpse into that. She names her son Simeon, meaning to be heard. But she wanted to be heard by her husband Jacob more than she wanted to be heard by God. She names her son Levi, which means attached. She wants to be attached to her husband more than she wants to be attached to God. And along the way, from Leah's mouth, what we see is that her official theology, her stated theology, is actually pretty solid. Three times in four verses, she says, God's the one at work here. Verse 32, she says, because the Lord has seen my affliction. Verse 33, because the Lord has seen that I am hated. She's going on and on saying, the Lord did this, the Lord did that. If she lived in our day, her social media feed would be filled with scripture posts. Right, the official theology statement that she embraces is good. But the functional core of her being is idolatrous. She invokes the name of the Lord saying he's doing these things, but she idolizes the love and the approval of her husband. That is the thing that's required for a truly meaningful and satisfying life. Friends, she may give intellectual assent to the gospel, but she doesn't delight in the gospel. That's not what drives her. In a sense, she sees God like the genie in Aladdin and says, I love you, genie. She doesn't love the genie. She loves what the genie can do for her. And friend, I wonder this morning if you see God a bit like Leah did, the big man upstairs who can give you what you want. Like Leah, you know your Bible factoids. You log your hours faithfully in Kidstown. But at the core of your being, what is required to have a truly meaningful and satisfying life? Leah, of course, longed for the love and approval of her spouse, and that, that's no doubt prevalent today. But could I press a couple of other questions? Could life be truly meaningful and satisfying if you were to lose your physical or mental health? Would Jesus still be enough? Could life be truly meaningful and satisfying if you lost all of your life savings. There was no retirement there, and you couldn't find a job anywhere, much less one you wanted. Would Jesus still be enough? What if your kids started hating you and never wanted you around, never to speak with you? Could life be truly meaningful and satisfying then? These are hard questions for us to ponder. What is at the core of my being? But for Leah, we know the answer was often the wrong one. She loved the approval of men more than the approval of God. And yet, and yet, catch this, despite her idolatrous bent, God continues to show her relentless grace. How do we see that? There's a child born in verse 35. Do you know what his name is? Judah. Doesn't immediately strike you as significant, perhaps, but one day when Jesus would come, do you know who he came through? The line of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah is Jesus, the Messiah. 
And he says, yes, Leah, I see you in all your idolatry, and I'm going to show relentless grace and pursue you. Friends, do you remember a couple moments ago when I said it was a good day to be here if you feel like a spiritual failure? Like you can't get it right. Like you're not making progress in the Christian life. Do you remember that? Here's why this is good news. Because if God can use someone like Leah, then he can use someone like you too. And his grace is not limited by your failures or by your weakness. If you'll simply confess your neediness on, for him, your sin against him, and say, Lord, I need your grace. I need you. I can't do it on my own. I need you to forgive me, to transform this hard heart I have. Keeps trying to do it my way. Remember, God is more concerned with your spiritual availability than your spiritual ability. He says in Ephesians 2, it's all by grace that you've been saved. And right after that passage, 2, 8 and 9, he says in verse 10, there are good deeds prepared in eternity past for you to walk in if you will say, Lord, I need your grace. I need you today. His grace is relentless in pursuing us. Friends, there is grace for Leah's longings. Now, before we transition out of the section on Leah and talk about Rachel, I want to have a brief little interlude here. Because there's an idea that reaches up and touches Rachel, or Leah, and it kind of reaches down and touches Rachel. Did I just say that backwards? It reaches up to Leah, down to Rachel. That's what I was trying to say. I don't know what just came out. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and this is a tough section, okay? Um, what we read is that God is the one who sovereignly opens and closes the womb. And I know as we talk about this, this is going to feel intensely personal and gut-wrenching for many of you. Friends, stick with me. Let's see what the scriptures say. We'll talk about this together just a little bit. Let's look at chapter 29 and verse 31. Here's what we read. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Drop down to chapter 30 and verse 1 with me, please. See the same theme being repeated? Here's what we read. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? You see, clear statement, both in Leah and in Rachel's life, that God is sovereign over all things, including the womb. What this touches on is what we call God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. And there's, there's three parts of God's sovereignty that are very important for us to understand. His authority, his control, and his covenantal presence. Let me explain each of those and then explain how that helps us. Okay, God's sovereignty, you might think of a sovereign, what is a sovereign? It's a supreme ruler. A sovereign is a king. A sovereign is a ruler. Except God is not a king, a monarch, a ruler. He is the sovereign of the entire universe. So when we think about authority, control, and covenantal presence, here's what this means. Because God created everything out of nothing, he has authority over it all. 
authority over every galaxy, authority over every nation, authority over every person, authority over every subatomic particle. The biggest of the smalls, he's got it all. But because he created it out of nothing, it also means he has control over it all. Not just authority to say things, but power to control. And if you stop right there and you don't get to the covenantal presence part, it could be very bad because God could be arbitrary or vindictive or like some kind of a dictator that you wouldn't want to be under this sovereign's rule. So you can't just get the first two and leave out the third. So when we say his covenantal presence, what we're saying is Yahweh, the God who comes down and makes covenant with his people in Genesis 15, first with Abraham. We've been reading about it as we go forward. And a couple weeks ago, he came down in the form of a ladder and says, you've been trying to build your way to me and I'm gonna come down to you. I'm gonna make covenant with you. That God comes to his people. His covenant-making presence is everywhere. You don't get away from that. Now, this is a robust way of saying he's good. Okay, if that's kind of what Justin, this covenantal presence is, it's new language for me. It's a, a thicker way of saying God is good and his goodness is everywhere because he comes down and says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And I will be Emmanuel, God with us. And you jump forward to the New Testament, you read in John 1:14, the word became flesh and dwelt with us. There's a paraphrase that says the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood so that you would know his covenantal presence is always with you. That's what we mean by God's sovereignty. And here in Genesis chapter 29, we find a story filled with all kinds of plot twists. Jacob sought marriage with Rachel, but he got Leah. He sought to have children with Rachel, but got a family with Leah. And God had promised offspring. So why is he now closing the womb? In your life, I, I, I have to imagine, I don't have to imagine, I know that many of you say, God, you promised this thing. It was so clear that this would happen. And now why are you doing this? Why? Friends, frequently, most of the time, we don't know why God is doing what he's doing. I can't stand up here and pretend to give a full answer to that. We know that infertility is a terrible part of living in a cursed world, and we want to know more about what's going on and why this happens. And of course, it's specifically infertility in this particular passage, but you could apply it to a whole host of terrible circumstances and suffering and ask the exact same underlying question. And these questions, they're so hard. We rack our brains trying to understand what's going on. We don't often know why these things happen like they do. But here's what we do know. That there's only one sovereign over the whole universe, the God of the Bible. He has full authority. He has full control. And because of his covenantal presence, that is everywhere. We know for a fact that he's working all things for his glory and for our good, even when we can't see why. It means that our failures cannot thwart his good plans for us because Leah participates in deceiving Jacob and then she's wronged by Jacob 
And even so, God sees this sinful, unloved one and says, I will show you relentless grace. So it's good news that God is sovereign in showing grace for the sinful and the unloved. And this touches both Leah and Rachel. And so with that interlude there, it sort of brings us now to the grace for Rachel's longings. This is our second point, grace for Rachel's longings. Her core longing is just a touch different than Leah's. Her longing is for value and for worth that will come in the form of children. And just like Leah, we're going to see that it's a good desire to say, I want to be valuable. I want to have worth. It's a good desire to have children as she did. Good desires can become ultimate desires. They can become more important to God. They become idols and then tear us away from God. Here's where we see this in Rachel's life. Chapter 30, verse 1. Please look back at your copy of God's word. Here's what we read. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. You hear the devastation in her voice? Give me children or I'll die. You ought to be hearing Esau overtones here. Give me this red stew or I will die. Jacob's parents, this is Rachel's in-laws, they too struggled with infertility for decades. But they took their longings to God in prayer. That's what Isaac and Rebecca did. Rachel starts making demands on her husband. And then shockingly, Rachel, who has been up to this point described as beautiful, starts a revolving door of sending her servants in to sleep with her husband and bear children on her behalf. It, it reminds me of a time when I would ask a child, maybe, maybe you've had something like this, they do something and you just cannot figure out for the life of you how they ever thought it was a good idea. And you look at them and you just, you're scratching your head and you say, how in the world did you think this was a good plan? That's how we're looking at Rachel here. It, it reminds me of the theologian who's, uh, well, he's not a theologian, it's Dwight Schrute in the office. <laughs> and uh, w- when Dwight says, whenever I'm about to do something, I ask myself, would an idiot do that? And if they would, I do not do that thing. <laughs> We're looking at Rachel going, Rachel, did you ask yourself, would an idiot do that? Because that just does not add up. It doesn't make sense. But friends, this is how idols work. They're irrational. They make you stupid. Where you'll look back, and, and all of us can do this. We can look back at one point and we scratch our head at our own behavior, our own decisions, saying, how in the world did I think that was a good idea? They're good things. They become ultimate things. They grab your hearts and take you away from God. They destroy you. And just notice in Rachel's life what this looks like. Is it better to die than to get my idol? Yeah, it's better to die. I must have this thing. Should I pray about it? Nah, I can get this thing on my own. I must have it. Does it require obvious sin for me to get it? Yeah, but it's worth it because I must have this thing. And while Jacob certainly isn't the dominant 
character in this part of the story, people-pleasing appears to be his idol because he'll consent to and go along with wicked schemes in the name of keeping his wives happy. We see his idol being revealed, saying, Jacob, how in the world did you ever agree to this? Maybe you didn't dream up the plan, but come on, man, like have a spine. So friends, can I just ask, what is it that you must have? Maybe you know the answer to that right away. And the Holy Spirit is bringing intense conviction in your heart to the point that your hand is shaking right now. Or maybe you're not quite sure. You say, Justin, that is a difficult question to answer. But it's one I ought to ponder. From whether you know the answer to that question or not, I'd like you to write it down if you're taking notes. Simply write down this. What must I have? Without it, life cannot be meaningful, cannot be satisfying. I invite you this afternoon, this evening, through the week, to prayerfully take that question to God. God, what is it that I think that I must have? I'm confident his spirit will speak to you, help you to know your own heart and what's there. You know, Rachel was introduced at the beginning as beautiful, but she just doesn't quite seem as beautiful at this point in the story. A word to single men, single women, teenagers. I want you to take note here for just a second. The person you've got your eye on, they might be hot, like Rachel was, but so is hell. (laughs) So just please look for something more than who you think is hot right now. Look, understand this. My little joke here doesn't mean that you're going to hell for making a mistake at any point in your life, whether sexually or otherwise. So don't, don't hear it as such. But do recognize that man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. And married people, can I just tell you, it's easy to think that that's something that teenagers need to hear. But don't pretend like that's not something that needs to be applied to your heart as well, that you can see somebody or something that looks awfully good. And you better take that to heart as well. So how is it that God shows relentless grace to Rachel in the midst of this train wreck that she's created? How does God do that? I said it was grace for Rachel's longings. How does he show up? He opens her womb, and who does she give birth to? Joseph. (laughs) It's it's too good to be true. Man, you want, like, I want a child to be the one to say, yeah, that's my boy. I hope he's my brother or at least alumni from my school or something. He can be my champion, the one that goes off to Egypt and saves the Israelites from global famine. Yeah, that Joseph. The one who gives them the best land, the best as in all of Egypt. Yeah, that Joseph. Man, you talk about relentless grace, the utterly undeserving, and God breaks in to her life and says, I'm gonna give you the son Joseph to show you that no matter how idolatrous your heart is, if you will confess your need, then I will use you and bless you. It's as if she had external beauty at the outset and God says, with my grace, I'll make you more beautiful than you ever could have imagined. Oh, it's glorious. Grace, also for Rachel's longings. I told you at the beginning that we would look at grace for Leah's longings and Rachel's longings. 
but I wouldn't forget about the mandrakes. Time for the mandrakes. Third point, grace in the mandrakes. Let's go back to the story and reread just to kind of reacclimate ourselves because this is not a familiar part of Scripture for most of us. Chapter 30, let's look at verse 14. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Maybe you read this and you've got a clear picture in your mind of what a mandrake is. I didn't have a clue. I just don't know what a mandrake is. So I started doing a little research, and let me just share a bit with you of what I found about mandrakes this week. They are apparently these Mediterranean plants with very minimal stem but beautiful leaves. Those are mandrake leaves right there. These leaves apparently can be up to 18 inches in length. It's a pretty large leaf. And there's all sorts of scientific as well as superstitious things that we know about mandrakes. So let me start scientifically and then get to superstitiously. Not a little stitious, but a lot stitious. Superstitious, as Michael Scott would say. Scientifically, these things have a high toxicity. It makes them poisonous to ingest. So if you eat mandrakes, I just recommend not doing that. You might soon find yourself hallucinating or vomiting, or they can even lead to asphyxiation. So if you find mandrakes, hang on to them, but please don't eat them. But superstitiously, throughout the years, there's been all this folklore about the many magical benefits of having mandrakes in the house. Some of them positive, some of them negative. If you've seen Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets, you've seen some of those be enacted along the way. But the benefit of mandrakes in view here in Genesis chapter 30 is that they supposedly help with infertility. They're a sort of prehistoric fertility drug. Now, it turns out to be junk science. It doesn't help with anything. So if you're concerned about junk science today, take heart. This is a long-standing tradition of humans to come up with these theories that make no sense. Nevertheless, Leah's son picks the mandrakes, and Baron Rachel wants them. I want help with my fertility. And Leah says, no way, Jose. You have the love of my husband. You're going to steal the fertility drugs too? And Rachel says, that's fine. Let's play a game of let's make a deal. You give me the mandrakes, you can have the husband tonight. And she says, that sounds good. Now you're talking. We pick it up in chapter 30, verse 16. And I'll just warn you, this is one of the most strange Bible verses in the whole Bible. Here's what it reads. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. Like I said, one of the most bizarre interactions in the whole Bible. And to make a comment, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, or you're not sure if you believe the whole Bible, or even if you like the Bible, I think at, at this point we can at least agree that if you don't like it or believe it, you can't say that it's boring anymore. <laughs> we literally find Leah soliciting prostitution. She says, you must come into me for I've hired you. And then the prostitute turns out to be Jacob, who would be renamed 
Israel. And the great irony of the situation is that Rachel, who gets the fertility drugs, ends up with no son. And Leah, who gives up the fertility drugs, gets a son named Issachar. And Issachar means forced labor. So maybe there's a pun that's meant there. But I think more significantly, the original audience, the Israelites, are in the wilderness wanderings, remembering their deliverance from forced labor in Egypt, and what they're supposed to do. The reason God writes it this way, and this is like astonishing when I connected this this week, so I, I hope you see the glory in this. They're supposed to read this and say, oh, this is how it works. When you turn from God for another lover, you become a sort of spiritual prostitute. That's how we get ourselves into this mess in the first place. We get ourselves into forced labor where God has to intervene and deliver us from our own idolatry here. And they're reading it and they're understanding their national history as, oh, when we, like our father Jacob, the true Israel, at least the first Israel, not the true, that would be Jesus, the first one is Jacob, commits spiritual prostitution. We get ourselves into forced labor. God has to intervene and deliver us from slavery, first from Egypt and then later from sin. And there's this pervasive theme that this is opening up in the Old Testament that the people of God frequently act like spiritual prostitutes, like their father Jacob did. In fact, more than 30 times, in the Old Testament, this is the description given to the people of God. Who go after other gods, after other lovers, thinking that meaningfulness and satisfaction can be found there. But don't worry, I'm not, I'm not going to put these all on the screen and, and, and you know, go through all of this. If you're taking notes, I'll give you just a couple. Numbers chapter 25, verse 1, you can look there. Psalm 106, verse 39. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Hosea chapter 4, verses 10 through 15, it's all over the place. Kind of the idea we expect here is that uh, God's people are sort of looking around saying, come on, God, we're not that bad. Like, aren't you exaggerating this? Quit using this inflammatory language, this isn't really what's going on here. In Ezekiel 16, God speaks to that in a, a very obscure Old Testament passage, and he says, look, you are a little bit different, but not in a good way, because at least a prostitute gets paid something, and you don't get paid anything. In fact, you're giving up your money to be able to do this. It's a horribly disturbing picture. He says, you guys have overestimated your spirituality. You think you deeply love me, and you are so misguided. Look, I understand it's uncomfortable for us to sit and talk about this, for you to hear this, that trust me, it's just as uncomfortable for me to say this in a room of this many people. Certainly more than maybe some of you thought you were signing up for this morning. But here, here's what happens, I think. We skip over this stuff. We pretend it's not in the Bible. We stop worshiping the God of the Bible and we worship a God made in our own image. A God who tells us we're all good. Everything's on the straight and narrow. Go get them, partner. We get comfy putting our mask on, saying that we've got things under control. Friend, don't be deceived. The Old Testament regularly speaks as the people of God in this way. 
In the New Testament, we read about these Pharisees who've gone on and on, keeping the rules, they think. Guys, we cannot, we must not read this book primarily as a rules manual. Does it have rules for us to obey? Absolutely. Is it important that we obey them? Absolutely. But it's first focused on showing us who God is and who we are. And it's showing us over and over and over that we have a spiritually fatal disease and it's called sin and we need God's grace desperately. So you can't read these narratives, these passages in a sense of like, learn to be like Leah, rejoice like Rachel, put a little WWJD bracelet on. What would Jacob do? Try really hard to obey all the rules. Because if you read the Bible that way, then your primary focus is going to be on sinning less. And if that's your primary focus, then you're going to become spiritually arrogant based on your spiritual performance and look down on others just like the Israelites. And when God says, look, you've behaved in these ways, you're going to say, come on, God, it's not that bad. Quit exaggerating. Isn't that inflammatory language? just like they did. Growth in Christian living means that I am repenting more and more as my primary focus. Psalm 51, 17, what does God say? This is David in his prayer of confession after committing adultery with Bathsheba. And he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Friend, if you repent more, and that's a daily, hourly habit, I promise you, you will sin less. Because it is important that you sin less. Don't, don't hear me wrong in that. But if your first focus is on how do I do better, you're going to end up missing the mark. Because the idea is I, I do good enough. I do enough good things. I resist enough bad thoughts. I can sort of manage my Christian life and I don't actively need Jesus every single minute of every single day. And the point of this passage is to say, man, you need grace all the time. And just like they had their idols that they look to, we've got our idols that we look to as well. It's just that in 2023, they're named a little differently. And it usually has to do with how we conceive of our identity, who we are where we're looking for love and approval, significance and value. I think for a lot of people, it's just in being a hard worker. That's how I most deeply identify myself. And if everybody I knew looked on me in disgust and they really believed I was a lazy mooch and they said, man, you are the laziest person I've ever met, it would be absolutely crushing for the idol of hard work. Or we conceive of ourselves as generous people. And that's our fundamental identity. And when somebody walks along and accuses you of being stingy with your time or with your money, it crushes you because that's who you are. That's the functional core of your being. I'm a family man, I'm a family woman. And if one of your mentors was to call you and say you're an embarrassment of a parent, because you don't do this, 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 and this. Your kids go off the rails and you blame yourself. It's crushing because you put your identity in something besides grace. The point of all of this is to point ahead to say that Leah 
and Rachel and you and me would all need a, proverbially son, a proverbial son who is better than any of these sons. Walk into the very beginning of the Gospels in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, and the angel shows up and says, You shall call his name Jesus. And what's his name mean? For he shall save his people from their sins. They needed a better son, and we need a better son who will be, who'll be sold out, not for mandrakes, but for 30 pieces of silver better son who would be put into forced labor, not in Egyptian slavery, but in carrying his cross up to Mount Calvary. There at Calvary is where we see that, yes, this book is about grace, and it's about grace that comes freely to you, but it's not about grace that is absolutely free because it's very costly. Because the forced labor that your sin caused on Jesus and my sin caused on Jesus in going to the cross, he took all the expense. He bore all of God's wrath on the cross for your sin and for mine so that you could receive the riches of God's kindness. That's why we say grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. He took all the expense so you could have all the freedom all the grace that comes from it. That's why Peter in Acts 4 would say there's salvation in no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, the name of Jesus. And so friend, you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I, I don't believe this stuff yet, here's what you need to know, that Jesus is God, came to earth, became man, lived the perfect life that you didn't, and died the gruesome death on the cross that you deserved. It was your sin that put him there. It was my sin that put him there. You ask his forgiveness, you'll be forgiven. Have a relationship with God and eternal hope of heaven. I hope today you will ask him to save you. And if you are a Christian, what does this mean for you? It, re- it means you read the Bible looking for God's relentless grace. You don't have to hide who you are or what you've done or where you've been. You can bring it to him freely and confess these things. It's not as if you could have fooled him in the first place anyways. So you ask for grace that forgives and grace that sustains you as you go and grace that transforms your heart as you continue going. I I asked the band if we could close with one of my favorite hymns this morning because I think it so perfectly encaptures what's happening in here. The, The hymn is Come Thou Fount and there's a line that I love so much in it He says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. May we freely confess our need for grace, a heart that is prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I love, and ask him to seal us for his courts above. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we see your relentless grace on display in the pages of Scripture, and it astonishes us. that you wouldn't give up on people, that you wouldn't kick them to the curb, that you would show radical grace, relentless grace. Lord, I ask right now for all of us that are in this room and all of us that are online watching, there is a great temptation to say that I'm not as bad as the people in this story. God, we know that we are in our 
hard hearts, our dark hearts. And so we ask for your grace to break in that we would not fight against your spirit, but we would have listened to your spirit and confess with openness that we need you and we can't do anything to help ourselves, to get ourselves out of the mess we're in. Help us to see how beautiful it is, Jesus, that you would come and take away our sins and dwell with us and offer salvation and offer grace that will forgive and sustain and transform. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.